name is Shai, and I'm one of the elders here at Delray Baptist Church. Greet you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's good to be here this morning to worship with the people of God and to hear from God, from his word, to sing his praises, and to exalt the Lord Jesus. We're continuing in our series in the book of Philippians. So if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to open now to Philippians chapter 3. You can find it on page 981 of your pew Bibles. Today we're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. Philippians 3, 1 to 7. I'm going to read the passage and... At the conclusion of the reading, I'm, I'm going to say, this is God's word and would like you to respond. Thanks be to God. Philippians chapter 3, starting at verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is, not, is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out. For the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. This is God's word. This is God's word. <laughs> Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the scriptures which have made many of us in this room wise unto salvation. Lord, you have changed our lives with your word. And we praise you that your word contains your gospel about your son, that gospel which is your power for the salvation of all who believe. Lord, we pray that as we spend this time in Philippians chapter 3, that you would glorify your name, that your son would be magnified, that sinners would be reconciled, that we all would be humbled and stand in awe of the God who saves by grace and grace alone. And as always, Father, we pray that the Spirit of God would use the word of God 
reveal the Son of God, and that you would do this for the glory of your beautiful name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. What is a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian? What is Christianity? Different people give different answers to this question. If you based it on popular media, the answer might be something to the effect of Christianity is a religion practiced by judgmental and homophobic people who belong to the Republican Party and have Rush Limbaugh as their spokesperson. In many places around the world, if you ask that question, the answer would be Christianity is America's religion. Others might say, no, Christianity, that's, that's what you see on TBN in those late night infomercials with the weird looking televangelists. Or, no, Christianity, that's, isn't that the thing that's filled with a bunch of people who never have fun and they follow a bunch of rules and spend Friday nights watching Left, left Behind movies? Before I was a Christian, I would have said something to the effect of Christianity is based on a book written by men, and it's fine if people want to believe it, but they shouldn't try to convert other people. It's, if it works for them, great. You know, the more you hear people on the outside describe what Christianity is and then compare it with what we see in the Bible, the more you see how many misconceptions there are. But our main concern today is not with an outsider's perception of what Christianity is, but with those of us who would profess to be believers, those of us in the household of faith. I believe that even within the church, there is a lot of confusion about what it means to be a Christian. And so for the next two weeks, we're going to look at what's we've called it true Christianity in two parts. Today is part one, true Christianity. The first point today is that true Christianity doesn't add to the gospel. True Christianity does not add to the gospel. Let's look again at verse 1. It says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. The Apostle Paul begins this section of the letter by exhorting the church at Philippi to rejoice in the Lord. Now, as we've seen, if you've been here, this has been a major theme of the letter. He said it back in chapter 2, verse 18. Uh, he's going to say it again down in chapter 4, verse 4. And when he says this, rejoice in the Lord, he's picking up the language of the Psalms. 
So throughout the Bible, and particularly in the Psalms, you see this idea, this phrase, rejoice in the Lord. So in Psalm 32, verse 11, it says, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Psalm 33, verse 21 says, For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Psalm 35, verse 9, Then my soul will rejoice in the Lord, exulting in his salvation. Psalm 40, verse 16, But may all who seek you, speaking of God, rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. And so when the Apostle Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord, it's connected to God's salvation. In fact, the root word for rejoice here is related to the same word that we get the word grace from. And so he's saying, delight in God's saving grace. Now, when we talk about the grace of God, we're talking about God's undeserved kindness, his unmerited favor. This is Christianity, true Christianity 101. We are saved by the grace of God alone. No one deserves to be saved. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. We all deserve to be punished for our sin against a holy God. Salvation, it can't be earned by what we do. If God had left us to ourselves, we all would have perished under his righteous condemnation. All of us, we should have died and been lost in our sin forever. But in his grace, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, into the world. And as it says in Titus chapter 3, that when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. And when Jesus went to that cross, he also suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. And then he rose victoriously from the grave. And through faith in Christ, we go from being rebels and enemies of God to adopted sons and daughters of God who cry out, Abba, Father. And it's all of grace. We just sang about it. Not what my hands have done. We just sang about it. I praise the God of grace. I trust his truth and might. He calls me his. I call him mine. My God, my joy, my light. Tis he who saveth me and freely pardon gives. I love because he loveth me. I live because he lives. And so when the Apostle Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord. He's saying, consider and delight in God's saving grace. 
It means to meditate on and enjoy what the Apostle Paul says further down in verse 8 about the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, gaining Christ. To appreciate and understand what he says in verse 9 here about being found in Christ and receiving the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus. Rejoice in the Lord. And then he goes on to say, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Reminders are necessary because of our tendency to forget. We're all, we all have a case of spiritual amnesia. We can forget the things that God has done for us. It's the reason why Jesus gave us the Lord's Supper, right? He said, do this in what? Remembrance of me. We see the same idea in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, where it says, Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it right, as long as I'm in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. So that's what the Apostle Paul is doing here. He's, he's attempting to stir up the church by, a way, by way of reminder. And he says, it's no trouble to me to do this. And it's safe for you. Meaning, on the flip side, it's dangerous to not be reminded. You know, a big part of what we as pastors do is to continually remind you of what you already know. That it might be impressed more and more on your hearts because it's a safeguard, he says. And so let us, let us resist the temptation to always be fascinated by something new. The idea of novelty, that if it's not, if it's not new, then what do we have to do with it? That's how it is in the world. Right? Think of all the new technology, whether it be entertainment, social media, there's just this constant longing for the new, the novel. To this thirst for novelty, the Lord says in Jeremiah chapter 6, he says, Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look, and ask for the ancient paths, and find rest for your souls. And so the Apostle Paul is going to remind them of some things, and we see his first reminder here in verse 2, where he gives a strong warning. Look at verse 2. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, when he says this, he's referring to a group in the New Testament known as the circumcision party, or the Judaizers. So that reference to mutilating the flesh is, that's a reference to circumcision. So to fully understand the context of what he's talking about, we have to understand who the Judaizers were. We learn about them in Acts chapter 15, verse 1, where it says, some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So the, the Judaizers were, were Jewish 
people who had professed faith in Christ, and they were saying that in addition to the work of Christ, you also must add on obeying the law of Moses. The Apostle Paul reserves some of his strongest language for this group. He says, look out for the dogs. Now, when he says dogs here, he's not talking about your cute little poodle. One commentator says this, quote, A culture like ours that spends millions of dollars on dogs as pets can scarcely appreciate the basic contempt that ancient society had for dogs who were both scavengers eating whatever street garbage they could find and vicious attacking the weak and helpless. They get universally bad press in the Bible and thus are metaphorically applied to humans only pejoratively or negatively. This is a strong rebuke. So is the Apostle Paul going overboard here? Doesn't seem very loving to refer to a group of people as dogs. Here's an interesting thing about Judaizers. The Judaizers did not deny Christ verbally. If you, would have, if you would have had a Judaizer speaking to you and just ran down the gospel, we're saved by Jesus? Yes. Jesus died on the cross? Yes. Jesus is God? Yes. Jesus is Lord? Yes. He's the Messiah? Yes. They would have amened all of those things. They were professing Christians. But they would have said, yes, we believe in Jesus Christ's work on the cross, but you also have to be circumcised. Otherwise, you cannot be saved. Well, that but right there makes all the difference in the world. Anytime you uphold the work of Christ and then, and then add on, however, you're adding to the gospel and you've moved from the realm of true Christianity. So what does this look like today? Who are the modern-day Judaizers? Well, I think it sounds something like this. Oh, we believe in Christ's work on the cross, but you must be baptized and be a disciple in the formula that we talk about. Otherwise, you can't be saved. Oh, we, we believe in Christ's work on the cross, but you must be baptized in Jesus' name only. Otherwise, you can't be saved. Oh, we believe in Christ's work on the cross, but you must be baptized by the Holy Spirit with evidence of speaking in tongues. Otherwise, you can't be saved. Oh, we believe in Christ's work on the cross, but you have to dress a certain way. Otherwise, you can't be saved. We believe in Christ's work on the cross, but you must use the King James Version only. Otherwise, you... Right? We believe in Christ's work on the cross, but you must keep the Sabbath and worship on Saturdays. Otherwise, you can't be saved. And on it goes. The Apostle Paul here says, look out 
for groups like this. They are adding to the gospel. And if you add to the gospel, it's no gospel at all. That's why he has this harsh language, because to follow them along that path means you end up in hell. It's very serious. The gospel is that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Alone, apart from anything that we could ever try to add. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, he said, it is what? Finished. His work was finished on the cross. We cannot add to it. True Christianity does not add to the gospel. Let us next observe that true Christianity is spiritual. True Christianity is spiritual. This is our second point. Look again at verse 3. He says, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So here the Apostle Paul is contrasting himself and his hearers with the Judaizers. And so when he says, we are the circumcision, he's making a radical statement here. Now this is hard for us to appreciate today, but the Bible teaches that before the coming of Christ, God had made a special covenant with Israel, and circumcision was the sign of that covenant. And so in Genesis chapter 17, verse 9, God appears to Abraham, and he says, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Of Israel, God says in Amos chapter 3, verse 2, he says, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. In Psalm 147, it says that God declares his statutes and his rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. And then Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, speaking to Gentiles, it says, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And so under the old covenant, in order to be made right with God, someone who was born outside of Israel, they had to be brought into the community of Israel, and for the men, it was through circumcision. And so what Paul is doing here is he's taking promises like the promise from Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, which says, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. He's taking these promises that were given to ethnic Israel, and he's now saying, us together, me as a Jew, you Philippians as a Gentile church, we're the circumcision. We're the circumcision. External circumcision was always meant to point to a deeper spiritual reality. That's why it says in Romans chapter 2, verse 28, 
It says, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. And so in the same way that the Judaizers did it with circumcision, I think many people today are tempted to do it with baptism. Many people treat baptism as though the outward act itself has some kind of magical saving power. But the power is not in the physical act of going in the water. The power is in the inward reality, the reality of being united spiritually to Jesus in his death, his burial, and being raised to newness of life. That's what happens at regeneration, the new birth. It's not just about this outward sign, but the inward reality. True Christianity is spiritual. He says also, we worship by the Spirit of God. This word translated worship here has the idea of temple worship, of the Levitical priests who served in the temple in the Old Testament. And his point here is that their service to God is not about the external rules and regulations of temple worship, but rather, as he says in Romans chapter 7, verse 6, we serve in the new way of the spirit, not in the old way of the written code. And so for Paul, he's like the Judaizers, they're stuck. They're stuck on the old way. They're stuck on the old thing. It's like going over to somebody's house to listen to some music, and then all of a sudden they just break out a boombox from the 80s. And they say, you need to listen to this song. Let me, let me throw in the tape. Let me fast forward the cassette tape. And you're like, come on, man. You're not, you're not up on the new? You're not up on the new thing? We worship by the Spirit of God. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 13 it says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. We worship, we serve God in this new way by the spirit, not by the external codes. It's the Spirit of God who has given us the Word. It's the Spirit of God who testifies about Jesus Christ, who produces the fruit of the Spirit in us, including joy. It's the Spirit of God who empowers the church to walk in God's ways. It's the Spirit who prompts us to pray. It's the Spirit who intercedes for us when we don't know how to pray as we ought. Wherever there is true Christianity, it must be characterized by a dependence on the Holy Spirit. And it's often in ways that we don't even realize. And then he says, also, we glory in Christ Jesus. When he says this, the idea of glory, glorying is the same as boasting. And so when he says this, He's actually pulling directly from Jeremiah chapter 9. So in Jeremiah chapter 9, 
verse 23, listen to what it says. It says, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he, know, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. And then listen to what he says in verse 25. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. So the Apostle Paul is pulling directly from this passage. And so when he says he puts no confidence in the flesh, what he's saying is our ultimate dependence, what we're ultimately relying on, is not riches, it's not wisdom, it's not might. Our ultimate reliance is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And that brings us to our last point, which is that true Christianity relies on Christ alone. True Christianity relies on Christ alone. Let's look again at verse 4. He says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh... I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So here we see the Apostle Paul listing out his credentials. He's walking through his spiritual advantages. And as he does so, what he's doing is he's making the case that he's actually more Jewish than the Judaizers who were coming after the Philippian church. He lists out seven specific things that gave him a spiritual advantage from a natural standpoint. And each one of these things is significant. So he begins with circumcision in verse 5, circumcised on the eighth day. This is significant because it meant that Paul wasn't a proselyte. Proselytes were, were Gentiles, non-Jews, who were circumcised later on in life and then brought in to the Jewish people. Paul is saying, I'm not, I wasn't a proselyte, I was a Jew from birth. He says, of the people of Israel. This is significant because it meant that the Apostle Paul was a part of God's covenant people that we just read about in Genesis 17. As we've seen, apart from Israel, there was no salvation. And so it's why he said in Romans chapter 3, verse 1, he said, What advantage has the Jew? What's the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. It was a great privilege to be born into a people who knew the true and living God. He says, I'm of the people of Israel. He goes on to say his third spiritual advantage, he says, of the tribe of Benjamin. 
And this is significant because within the 12 tribes of Israel, Benjamin was one of the few faithful tribes within the 12. You know, Paul, he was able to go to the Torah, Genesis through Deuteronomy, and he could actually see the genealogies of his own ancestors. So for him, it wasn't boring for him to read Chronicles and Numbers. Like, these are his family members that he's reading about. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. And then the next advantage he gives is a Hebrew of Hebrews. This is significant because it meant that Paul wasn't an outsider when it came to the Jewish people. He knew the customs. He spoke the language. In Acts chapter 21, there's this incident where the Apostle Paul is in in Jerusalem with this huge crowd of Jews ready to kill him and for preaching against the Jews and for desecrating the temple. And so the Apostle Paul, in, in the midst of this crowd, he asks for permission to address them, and then he begins to address them in Aramaic, their native language. And it says that the crowd just got quiet and listened. Why did they get quiet? It's because he's one of us. He's, t- he's one of us talking to us. Let's listen to what he has to say. They're ready to stone him after he talks about Jesus. But in the beginning, let's listen to what he has to say. As to the law, he says, a Pharisee. This is significant because it spoke to his level of knowledge. You know, many Pharisees had the first five books of the Bible memorized and could recite it, the whole Torah. They will put most of us to shame with their Bible knowledge. But even amongst the Pharisees, Paul stood out because he studied under Gamaliel, who was one of the most renowned scholars of his day. Paul testifies about this in Galatians chapter 1, verse 14. He says, he says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. The next advantage, he says in verse 6, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. This is significant because it spoke to, it spoke to Paul's passion and his willingness to do whatever it took to defend his understanding of Judaism, whether it meant losing his own life or taking somebody else's. Then he says, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. This is significant because it speaks to to Paul's observable obedience. He's not saying here that he was sinless, but he is saying that he was extremely pious. That if you were to look at how he obeyed the externals, you would have had to give it to him that this was a pious Jew. And so the Apostle Paul is saying, look, if anybody is going to boast in externals, it should be me. So just look at his resume. Consider his privileges. Again, circumcised on the eighth day. That's a religious privilege. Of the people of Israel, that's an ethnic privilege. Of the tribe of Benjamin, that's an ancestral privilege. A Hebrew of Hebrews, that's a cultural privilege. As to the law of Pharisee, that's an educational privilege. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, that's a personality privilege. As to righteousness under the law, blameless, that's a moral privilege. And yet, 
With all that, he's still able to say in verse 7, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. It should be noted that Paul is using accounting terminology. I know we got some accountants in the building, so, or at least some accounting-inclined people in the building, of whom I'm not one of them. However, he's using accounting terminology. He's talking about gains and losses, the language of finance, assets, and liabilities. And so you see what he's saying here? He's saying all of these prior assets, these things that would have gone in the asset column, they're now liabilities for the sake of Jesus. I'm willing to lose them all if I might gain Christ. I wonder, are any of us tempted to rely on our spiritual privileges this morning? Here's what those things might sound like today. Oh, I was born in a Christian home. My dad was a pastor. I was born in the Bible Belt. I spent all week in church as a kid. I was homeschooled. I'm reformed. Oh, my parents were missionaries. I went to seminary. I've been a Baptist for years. I've had a consistent quiet time for as long as I can remember. I'm in full-time ministry. I've been heavily discipled. I've discipled a good number of people. I'm an elder. I'm a deacon. I go on a missions trip every year. I sang on the choir. I've spoken at Christian conferences. I do Christian music. Those things are all fine and good. But if we are relying on those things to make us right with God, they are not assets. They are liabilities. We're relying on those things for our righteousness. They're not helping us get to God. They're actually keeping us away from God. Let us learn the first lesson of true Christianity. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Not for the sake of Christianity, but for the sake of Christ, for the sake of a person, Jesus. I think one of the saddest examples of this is the case of the rich young ruler. And many of us are familiar with it. There's a, a young ruler who approached Jesus and he asked him, he said, how can I inherit eternal life? And picking it up in Luke chapter 18, 
verse 20. Listen to how Jesus responded. Jesus said, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. The rich young ruler says, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. So the rich young ruler went away sad. Let's just consider that for one moment. The rich young ruler went away sad. He's standing before the he's standing before God. He's standing before Jesus, the most valuable being in the universe. And when this most valuable being in the universe tells the rich young ruler to give away his riches, which are not even pennies compared to the value of Jesus, he measures those things up and he considers Jesus to be the liability and he walks away sad. The very thing that was considered an asset was actually keeping him from the most valuable thing in the universe. May that not be the case for us this morning at Delray. I don't know what it is for you. I don't know what it is that's keeping you from Jesus. For the rich young ruler, it was money. Maybe that might be the case for you. Maybe it might be a relationship. But whatever is keeping you away from Jesus is not worth it. It is not worth it. I think, again, most of us are tempted to have spiritual things that are actually hindering our relationship with Jesus because of our over-reliance upon those things. By the grace of God, may that not be the case. May we all be able to say with joy that my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All of the ground is sinking sand. All of the ground is sinking sand. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you praise for Jesus and the surpassing worth, the surpassing value of knowing Christ. We pray, Father, that you would grant eyes to see things as they really are and that all of our performances, all of our privileges and advantages that by your grace, we would all be willing to say we count those things 
as loss for the sake of Jesus. Do this work in us for the sake of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.